0: One of the many ways that my lovely wife, Christina, uh, serves our family is to cook for us. Uh, she enjoys it, and we enjoy it, and she's good at it. And when we sit down as a family to eat, uh, I don't often hear, we're eating again. It's just not something, you know, often, in fact, the, the, the kids will, will ask for a snack before we ever get to the dinner table. And so when it comes to eating, repetition is necessary and repetition is good. Now, variety is also good. Eating the same thing over and over again can get boring, but as soon as I say that, we like eating some things over and over again. I can almost always have a burger. I would take a bite of one right now. I mean, it's just good. I had a lot of burgers in my life, and yet I can have another one. I want another one. I hope one comes to me soon. So repetition is good. Zig Ziglar, he once said, he called repetition the mother of learning. How did you learn to walk or to say the alphabet or to ride a bike? Repetition. Repetition. Every week someone preaches from this pulpit and God feeds you. We need to repeatedly hear the law and gospel because it's spiritual food. We come hungry, and God feeds us from his word. Honestly, sometimes worship feels humdrum. Maybe you're distracted one week. Uh, Maybe I'm less than compelling another week. But law and gospel repetition is good. We need it. We want it, and God gives it. In Galatians, Paul establishes that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul repeats that doctrine in various ways. Why? The Galatians needed to hear it again, because they were turning from the gospel to a false gospel. And like the Galatians, we are also prone to wander from the gospel and to be misled by uh, inventive and popular ideas of the day. So we need the law and gospel repeated over and over again to keep our thinking clear and precise. Who of us can say that they feel the full weight of God's holiness and God's law? Who among us has exhausted the depths of the beauty of the gospel? None of us. So hearing it again and again and again is good. Paul's repetition of justification by faith alone in Galatians, and all the different arguments that he uses to substantiate it, show you how significant this doctrine is to God, and how much God wants you to understand it, and how much God wants you to delight in this. And as we'll see later in Galatians, the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the foundation upon which the Christian life is built, We need a solid gospel foundation upon which to build the beautiful structure of a spirit filled life. So, the doctrine of justification by faith alone must be deeply embedded into your theology and into your thought life if you want to make progress in the Christian life, in Christian holiness. Repetition is good. It helps us remember that the good news is not about what we have done for God, but about what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message of divine grace. So here's my point today God gives salvation through promise or grace, not law. God gives salvation through promise or grace, not law. God's law is good, and God's gospel is good, but the law and gospel are not the same thing. God's good law is not good news to the bad sinner, but the gospel is. The Galatians were confusing the law and gospel, and they were turning from God to a different gospel poisoned with self-righteousness. And they needed the good news of Jesus Christ repeated to bring them back to God. So I have four simple points that parallel Paul's arguments in the text. At least I hope they do. The first is, once a covenant has been ratified, it cannot be annulled or expanded. And this is central to the gospel. The Galatians were familiar with covenants, so Paul's illustration made a lot of sense. Paul told them in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. It's pretty simple. The Galatians identified with Paul's illustration. When two parties um, made a covenant and it was ratified or it was legally and officially sanctioned, it could not be annulled or added to, or or expanded, or voided. In other words, a ratified covenant stands as it is, stands as it is. Paul's reasoning here is from the lesser to the greater. If a man-made covenant stands as it is, how much more does God's covenant with man stand as it is? Now, we explored God's covenant of grace in the Abrahamic narrative in the covenant theology series. That was an important series in understanding Galatians. God ratified his gracious covenant with Abraham. It was unchanging. Can't tamper with it. The Judaizers in Galatia now, okay, were attempting to add law keeping to God's covenant, His unchanging covenant, God's covenant of grace, cannot be annulled or added to. The blessings of the covenant of grace are received by grace through faith, not faith plus law keeping. All right? If you add law to grace, you lose grace. You lose the gospel. You lose Christ. Paul's illustration in verse 15 states a principle that is central to the gospel. Here's what Paul is alluding to in verse 15. If Abraham received the gospel via gracious covenant and promise, then Abraham could not have received God's gospel through obedience to the law or circumcision. Abraham received God's gospel by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, not by circumcision and not by good works. The covenant of grace was ratified by God and was entirely divine grace from beginning to end. Abraham... He contributed absolutely nothing, nothing. Even his faith was God's gracious provision. For the Judaizers in Galatia to then say that the the inheritance of God was by faith plus law keeping was to nullify God's grace and the merits of Christ. Paul was defending God's amazing and sovereign grace. So he rebuked the false teachers. He went after them and contended for justification by faith alone for the purity and joy of the church. They needed this message, this gospel. Why is it important for you and me to know this? Sometimes it's a struggle to get theology, right? Why is it even important? Well, not so you can sound smart in Sunday school, That's certainly not the answer, but to to live a life of gratitude and one of worship and one of praise and one of obedience to the law. So let's keep moving. Second point, God's promises to Abraham are principally promises to Christ, and this is our hope of blessing. Now, you have to think very carefully about verse 16. Verse 16 helps us understand the Abrahamic covenant. Helps us understand covenant theology. Helps us understand, really, the gospel. So think about verse 16 very carefully. Paul writes this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Oh, that's big. That's big. And that's tricky. That 's tricky, you have to think deeply here, so let 's review we 're going to start by reviewing god 's promises to Abraham, but we 're going to review them with Genesis 3:15 in mind, because that promise of the gospel must be kept in mind here when knowing about the Abrahamic covenant, so here 's the promise of the gospel that God delivered in Edom. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The, the offspring concept began in the garden in God's promise of a serpent slaying son. The offspring, the seed. Now, we don't have time to review all of God's promises uh, to Abraham, but we've, we've already spent considerable time on the Abrahamic Covenant in the past, in the Covenant theolo- uh, Theology series, so hopefully you remember a lot of that series, and you're able to bring that growth in, in you to this discussion here, and apply that to your knowledge and interpretation of Galatians, okay? So let me just highlight a few promises that God gave Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To your offspring, I will give this land. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. To your offspring, I give this land. My covenant is with you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, big picture here. God promised Abraham salvation in Christ, and the inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth, which Abraham received by faith. Abraham received earthly promises, absolutely, but more importantly, he received spiritual promises. Jesus talked about those spiritual promises, and the book of Hebrews does as well, most notably Hebrews 11. So God made gracious promises to Abraham and his offspring, which are physical. And most importantly, spiritual. Spiritual. But then, after the the whole Isaac and sacrificing and the ram and all of that ordeal, God promised Abraham something very thought-provoking in Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. Listen carefully. God promised Abraham this. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now that's very interesting. We know that Abraham would have an abundance of physical and spiritual offspring, but then God talks about one offspring. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, please stay with me here. The word offspring, or seed, is tricky. It is a singular noun, but it can refer to one singular offspring or the collective singular many offspring. Now, I don't want to be unnecessarily graphic here, but you need to get the point here. Paul uses the Greek word sperma from which we get our English word sperm. Is sperm one or many? There you go. Now you understand. Is Paul talking about one offspring or many offspring? Are God's promises for one offspring or many offspring? And that's what Paul is helping you understand. Paul takes us to the apex of God's promises. Yes, Abraham would have Isaac. Yes, Isaac would have Jacob. Yes, Jacob would become the 12 tribes of Israel and so forth. But above and beyond all those physical offspring and physical blessings is the one preeminent offspring. The preeminent sperma who was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. Not only was Abraham promised the serpent slaying son, but get this God's promises to Abraham are principally promises to that serpent slaying son. When Paul mentions the promises in verse 16, he is not talking about the law, he is not talking about the covenant of works, which says, obey and live, disobey and die. Paul is referring referring to the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant or more fully in the covenant of grace which says receive the grace of God in Christ alone and trust him to live or reject him and die. Now this is exciting folks. Let's pull this together. In God's gospel covenant, Promises to Abraham, offspring in the fullest and most profound way, refers to Christ, the promised and preeminently blessed offspring who inherits not just a small strip of real estate in the Middle East, but all the world, all things belong to him. Ephesians 1.22 says, and he put all things under his feet. Hebrews one verse two says that God appointed his son the heir of all things. Who is this great offspring that God promised to Abraham and to whom God made all these promises? It was not ultimately Isaac, nor was it ultimately the 12 tribes of Israel. Quoting Genesis now, Paul said the offspring promised to Abraham is Christ, and the promises were made to Christ. Paul is telling you, this is where this helps to read your Bibles Paul is telling us exactly how to interpret Genesis. He's showing us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul is teaching you how to study the Bible. The Abrahamic covenant is about Christ and about promises made to Christ. Abraham had the promises, absolutely, but you've got to ask yourself, how did he have the promises? And the answer is, only in union with Christ, which he had by faith. Now I'm really going to stretch you, okay? You've got to get this. You've got to get this. What about the collective singular offspring? What about the many offspring? Aren't the promises and blessings for the many offspring? And here's where you need to know the gospel. And here's where you need to know who the true sons of Abraham are. Or you will not be able to follow Paul's reasoning here. You'll just get disconnected and end up in weird places. But this is a profound argument that Paul is giving. So hold on tight here. Christ is the promised son. Christ is the promised and preeminent son of Abraham. Christ is the true Israel. Christ is the faithful and righteous seed who has obeyed God's law. Christ is the true son of Abraham. But the true sons of Abraham in the broadest sense are believers who are united to Christ by faith. So, if the promises made to Abraham were principally made to Christ, and Christ is the only one who deserves God's promises and blessings, then union with Christ by faith is the only way to receive God's promises and blessings. You need Jesus. Do you understand this? Christ alone is worthy of God's blessings. None of us are. He is the only one worthy of God's blessings. The only reason Abraham had God's blessings was because he received Christ by faith. That's it. Like Abraham, the only reason you and I receive God's blessings is because we trust in Christ who alone is worthy of God's blessings. Union with Christ, this is so very important to understand. Union with Christ is the only way to have God's promises and blessings. Union with Christ, union with Christ, union with Christ by faith. If I give you $500 trillion, which I don't have, but if I was to give you that, okay, I just said, this is yours, share it with anyone you want. And You're getting excited. The only way for anyone else to get any of your money is if you, the now filthy rich heir, give it to them. That's it. Okay, that's called grace. Christ has inherited all things because he alone is faithful and worthy and alone is the righteous heir. And the only way to obtain his righteousness, to obtain the promises of God, to obtain the blessings of God, is for him to give it to you through faith. Or else you don't have it. The Westminster Larger Catechism states the point simply. It asks, with whom was the covenant of grace made? And folks, to be honest with you, this has tripped me up for a long time until just recently. I think I have it. I think I have it. So if you don't get this first time, A-OK. With whom was the covenant of grace made? And it seems almost, well, us. Well, this is how, with Galatians 3 in mind, this is how the, the Westminster Larger Catechism answers. The covenant of grace was made with Christ As the second Adam, and in him with all the elect as his seed. And lights are starting to go on with me. Okay, I understand how the covenant of grace was made with Christ. The promises were made to Christ. The blessings were made to Christ. It was all about Christ from the beginning. And if you want in on any of that action, you have to be in Christ. And that's the promises for you if you are one of. The elect, which we know by looking at faith. Do you trust Christ? Do you trust Christ? Galatians 3 implies the federal headship of Christ. I know that's fancy language, but hey, I've talked about it before. We learned about this in the Covenant Theology series, so you should know about this. As Adam was the federal head or the legal representative of all of humanity, Christ is the legal representative or federal head of the church, the elect, God's people. Verse 16 refers to God's promises being made to Christ and therefore alludes to all believers sharing in Christ's inheritance because of their association with him. And Paul uses this to substantiate justification by faith alone. Being right with God and inheriting eternal life is about trusting in the one and only Jesus Christ who is right with God and deserves eternal life. Who inherits the promises and blessings of God? Christ alone. They're all for him. No one else. And then every single person who receives him by grace through faith and then they get it in him. This is so important what Paul says in Romans 4 13 through 16 is stunning just listen to these words for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for it is for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs faith is null and the promise is void for the law brings wrath but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. If the Judaizers were right in Galatia, if righteousness is through the law and you have to become a Jew, then faith in Christ is pointless. as is the promise of salvation in Christ. It means nothing. The fact that salvation comes by God's promise and not by the law means salvation is by grace alone. Verses 15 and 16, they're not easy verses. There are multiple layers of meaning here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, the Gentiles, Christ, the church. I mean... You read it and you're like, which direction do I go? I mean, there's a lot packed in, multiple layers of meaning, but verse 17 is critical in understanding the gospel. To know that God's promises to Abraham are principally promises to Christ is key in knowing Christ as our only hope and guarantee of blessing. We can't spin this. It's about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says beautifully, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. In him. So you really need to understand all this. So here's a quote from Dr. Philip Riken, who I quote a lot. He's very good on this, which I hope solidifies the big picture in your mind. It's somewhat lengthy, but, but it's so helpful. So here's what Riken says, quote, the covenant promise was really for Christ. And when we belong to Christ, the promise belongs to us. Once we understand that God's promise to Abraham is a promise to Christ, then the fact that the word offspring is a collective noun makes perfect sense. A collective noun can refer either to a single individual, or to a group of individuals, or to both. So it is with the offspring of Abraham. The promise refers, first of all, to a single individual, Jesus Christ. But it also refers to a collection of individuals, namely everyone who belongs to Christ. The party to the covenant is Christ and all who are in him. That's important, so let me read it again. The party to the covenant is Christ and all who are in him. God gave the promise to Abraham. The promise was Christ. Since we are in Christ, the promise is for us. In the words of the Puritan William Perkins, quote, the promises made to Abraham are first made to Christ and then in Christ to all that believe in him. And Reichen continues, Here we are reminded again of the doctrine of union with Christ, which is so central to Galatians and to Paul's theology in general. The Christian is in Christ, we participate in him. By faith we are incorporated into him. We have, cons- we have covenant solidarity with him. We are so united to Christ that what is his becomes ours. To quote again from Perkins, the right way to obtain any blessing of God is first to receive the promise and in the promise Christ and Christ being ours in him and from him, we shall receive all things necessary. End of quote. That. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. Paul really, really wants the Galatians to understand, and so he begins verse 17 with this. This is what I mean. So so here's what Paul is trying to explain. He's explaining it really clearly. But maybe we're trailing a bit. Maybe we're like, "Uh, not getting it yet, Paul. So he says, "Well, well, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. The law... Which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, our eternal inheritance comes not by the law, but by gracious promise. Therefore, God's law doesn't void God's promise. God's promise stands. The the Mosaic law came through Moses 430 years after Abraham. And Paul is alluding here, I think, to Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41, 430 years after. Now, scholars calculate those years in different ways, don't really want to get into that. But the point is, which you can't miss, that the Mosaic law came long after God's promise of Christ to Abraham. That's the point long after, and it follows, if Abraham was justified by faith alone in Christ alone, then the law could not have been Abraham's means of justification. It is clear then that the gospel preceded, predated the Mosaic law. Therefore, God did not give the Mosaic law as the means by which he would justify sinners, but rather the means which he would show sinners that they are sinners, That's what the law does. It's a great gift to us. God gave us the law, not so we could feel good about ourselves, but so that we would feel our pressing need of the Messiah. With verse 15 in mind, Paul is saying that the Mosaic law does not annul or abrogate God's covenant of grace, which God had long before ratified. The the Mosaic law cannot nullify the gospel of God's grace. If the inheritance of eternal life with God in his kingdom did come by the law, then who cares about God's promise and who cares about God's grace? Get to work. That's the message of that gospel, which is no gospel at all. But Paul says, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Oh, that's precious. Salvation is by grace alone alone. Because God made a promise and God keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. All that we can do, folks, is trust that God will keep his promises. What else is comfort to your soul? That you're going to come through? How has that been up until this point in your life? You're going to trust yourself? No. Christ is the promise keeper. Christ is the covenant keeper. Christ is the law keeper He always keeps His promises. You're secure in Him. This is the gospel, folks. This is the gospel, and it is so, so good. I hope you see why it is anti-gospel to think salvation comes by good works. That's a different gospel. It's just not good news. There are Christians... Who make a significant error in failing to distinguish between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant? It's a huge problem and error. We didn't get this far to the Mosaic covenant in the covenant theology series. Maybe we'll return to it someday, but it is important to understand the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is gospel, and the Mosaic covenant is law. Both are good, but they're different. Calvin explained Paul like this, he tells us that God made two covenants with men, one through Abraham and another through Moses, the former being founded on Christ was free and therefore the law which came after could not enable men to obtain salvation otherwise than by grace, for then it would make the promise of none effect, end of quote. Dr. Philip Ryken wonderfully differentiates the law from the gospel or the Mosaic covenant from the the, uh, Abrahamic covenant. Ryken said this, the difference between the promise and the law is evident from the vocabulary God used when he first gave them. When he made the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God said, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. Isn't that a good summary? See the difference between those? That lands differently when we hear those. John Stott differentiated gospel from law like this. The promise sets forth a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise, standing for the grace of God, had only to be believed. But the law, standing for the works of men, had to be obeyed. Do you see the difference? God guaranteed Abraham a marvelous inheritance of eternal life and blessing in the eternal kingdom of Christ through promise. Through the promise of Christ, a promise that Abraham received by faith alone. And that's how you receive the inheritance. It's promised to those who receive it in Christ through faith alone. An inheritance is passed down uh, to a uh, successor once the owner dies. So think about the legendary M&M's candy. Anybody love M&M's candy? Come on, shoot those hands up. Okay, yes, kids. Uh, And that is produced by Mars Incorporated, a multi-billion dollar company. Frank Mars started the company in 1911, three years before World War I began. Frank Mars passed the company to his son, Forrest Mars Sr., who then passed it to his children, Jacqueline, Forrest Jr., and John Mars, who are all worth at least $23 billion today. They didn't work for their inheritance. They were given their inheritance because of who they are. That's why, saints, we inherit eternal life from God who gives it to us by promise, Eternal life is grace, not works. Gospel, not law. Promise, not effort. We receive the inheritance only because of who our God is and who we are in Christ. So dear brothers and sisters, fellow believers, fellow heirs with Christ, here's what I want to end to encourage you today. Jesus Christ is the promised Son and rightful heir of the blessings of the covenant. How good of him to share the blessings with Abraham and us. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the heir of all things. And remember that God's promises were to Christ and Christ inherited a whole lot more than one strip of real estate in the Middle East. Christ has inherited all things. All things. Romans 8 says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here's the good news for the Galatians and the good news for you and me That we're receiving this many, many years later, this repetitious message of the gospel. Here it is. People from all nations are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, not because they obey the law, but because of God's gracious promise received by grace alone through faith alone. Isn't it interesting that hanging above the gates of Auschwitz was the phrase Arbeit Macht Frei, or work sets you free. What a damning message. Too many people today, including some professing Christians, are trapped in this horrifying prison camp of works righteousness, believing to their own death that God accepts them because they are good and they work hard at morality. Work does not set you free. Christ does. Saints You are heirs of a magnificent inheritance simply because God wants to lavish it on you by his grace. He wants you to have it, so he gives it. And at the end of Galatians 3, Paul said this And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's wonderful news. Wonderful news, heirs according to promise, not good works. In Galatians 4, Paul tells the entire Galatian church, both Jewish and Gentile believers, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, that's an intimate phrase, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Paul told the Galatians that they received the Holy Spirit by hearing with faith, and saints... The Holy Spirit that you have received by hearing with faith is your guarantee of inheritance. You will have the inheritance and the Spirit at work in you is a guarantee of it. You have the Spirit? Is He working? Praise God because that assures me of my inheritance. The law says... You have no inheritance. The law says the inheritance is flat out out of your reach. The law kills any dream of inheriting anything from God. But the gospel says that Christ inherited all things and because you belong to him, he shares all of it with you. And just so you believe him, that his promise is right and it is true, and just so you never lose heart, dear one, He gives you his Holy Spirit as a seal and a guarantee. Wow, that's amazing. God's law is good, but it can't do for you what Christ alone can do for you and has done for you. What it comes down to is this God gives salvation through promise or grace, not law. Oh, that this truth would be precious to you. Oh, that this truth would comfort you in your doubts over whether God actually accepts you, whether he actually loves you, whether you are actually right with him. Oh, that this truth would deepen your affection for and appreciation of Christ. Oh, that this truth would enliven your thankfulness. Remember, you have died to the law. Why? In order that you may live to God. I'll let Dr. Riken land this plane. This is what he writes. It helps to remember how promises work. It is impossible to earn a promise. The only way to receive a promise is to trust in it. If a wealthy benefactor promises to give me a house in Laguna Beach, there is nothing I can do to fulfill the promise. The only thing I can do is to trust him to keep his promise, or not, as the case may be. So it is with the promises of God's covenant Only God can fulfill them. Salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. God will not, indeed he cannot, go back on his promise. Father, you are so good to give us your promises in Christ. All those promises, those glorious promises, they're for Christ. And he has them all because of his righteousness and his merit and his inheritance as the only begotten son of God who in perfect righteousness obeyed the Father at every turn. God, he was faithful. He he did what we did not do. And he received from you a name that is above all names, Every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, God, I I thank you for Christ. He is so precious to us because in him we have all the blessings that you promised. We don't deserve them. We're not worthy, but Christ is worthy, and we know him. Therefore, we receive what he receives. We are blessed in him. God, help us to remember that we inherit all things, that we will reign with Christ in the eternal kingdom. He is God, we are his creatures, and he has been so pleased to bring us to himself. God, thank you for your grace that you have given us through Christ and the gospel. I pray that the people listening to this sermon would not fall under the law, trying to perform in order to be right with you, in order to be accepted by you, but instead that they would rest in Christ and receive by faith all of his merits which count as their own. I pray that you give rest to your people, give joy to your people, give gratitude to your people, give praise to your people, give worship to your people. God, help us to care about this. This is the foundation for our life in Christ, for, for us living for you by the power of your Spirit. We, we have to, to know these things because they provide for us the springboard upon which our sanctification takes place. So God, I ask that you will be pleased to help this resonate within our hearts and help us to believe it and help us to treasure Christ. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for feeding us this morning. And I pray that we eat it up and that it strengthens us for the week and for the month and for the year and until we die, until we see our righteousness in Christ. And it is for his glory that we pray. Amen.